Hello, this is Pastor Nate Ward with Open Door Church, and I wanted to take a moment to welcome you to our podcast. It's my personal prayer that you would be encouraged and encountered by the Holy Spirit and challenged by His Word. May the Lord bless you and stir faith as you listen to this week's message. I, I know most of you guys. Most of you guys have been here for a while, which is great. But uh, before I moved back, I moved in like July, um, like toward, towards the middle of July, I think. Um, I had lived here before. I lived here for a, a lot of years. And um, for a lot of that time, I was a youth pastor. And um, in the time in between uh, leaving here and, and kind of um, saying goodbye to the student ministry here, I uh, went up to Colorado Springs. Um, we tried to go overseas as missionaries. It's still very much our family's goal, but it's complicated. <laughs> um, it's, it's harder than it sounds, and it sounds pretty hard. Um, but then uh, from, from there, I spent a season as a, as a youth pastor again. That's kind of what I spent most of my adult life um, working towards is, is ministry and, and students and those kinds of things. And in that time, in, in the time here in Pagosa and, and then our time in, in northern Colorado, um, I had uh, kids from all varieties of, of like church backgrounds. I had kids from no church background. <laughs> which is sometimes some of the favorite, my favorite stuff to do. Because one, it's just the Lord working in their lives, and everything you say is just like, what? Really? Huh? And of course, you also have to deal with like kids like cussing while they pray and stuff like that. But um, sometimes Christian kids do that too. Um, but uh, I also had kids that came from really conservative backgrounds. There's something about this wave of student ministry in this generation right now where people are not so concerned on, like, the subtext of your church. Like, we are an Assemblies of God church, but that's probably not necessarily why you came here. Maybe it is. That's totally fine if it is. But you probably came here because you know Nate or you heard a crazy story or something like that, and, and that's fine. But uh, especially in student ministry, kids are coming because their friends invited them. So they don't really care. It's like, well, are you credo Baptist or Pado Baptist? Like, what is what is sort of your your theological? What is your doctrinal stance on on the end times, pan, pre, post, uh, a tribulation? Like, what do, what do you actually? No, nope, no, nope, kids don't care about that. And so I had a lot of kids from really conservative backgrounds, who we, being a Pentecostal network of churches, we would talk about things. And have to explain things, and it was one of my favorite things to do to explain Pentecostal theology to a kid from a like conservative cessationist church background. We also had a lot of kids who came from pretty poorly. How do I say this without sounding mean? From Pentecostal backgrounds that didn't do a great job in representing what Pentecostalism actually is. And those kids were uh, some of the hardest to explain things to because they've, they've experienced it. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I've, I've seen all the things you're talking about, and I don't really care about the Bible so much. And, and we, we see kids from all expressions of that. Or I think here in Pagosa, in, in sort of the golden age of when, when youth group was really having a lot of, like, visible momentum, we had a lot of kids who came from a Pentecostal background, were kind of frustrated and upset about it, and we're grateful that here they come to a nice Bible-teaching church, only to find out we're Pentecostal. And, um, and it was great to kind of try and shepherd people through that. I use this sort of silly introduction because uh, this morning I want to talk about something that is widely debated. And this is something that separates entire traditions of the church. And that's not to like try and like emotionally load the message or anything like that. But it is something that um, I don't ever want to come off on. Like, if you don't think like I think, you're stupid. But also, I believe that the reason that our fellowship, myself personally, our church staff personally, and the entire network of churches that we align ourselves with consciously, the reason that we believe what we believe is not because... It's our rich Pentecostal heritage. We just uh, chew the meat and spit out the bones. We don't really care about all those weirdos in history, whatever. Like, we understand that there have been amazing strides in the kingdom of God because of the tradition that we call Pentecostalism. 
There has also been pretty famous and infamous detractors from the kingdom of God who have carried the banner of Pentecost or even Assemblies of God. <laughs> and there's been people that are like claiming the, the day that the Lord's going to come back. There's people that have started cults and all these sort of things. And, and I want to stand here today to frame a theology for you, not based on our heritage or tradition, but honestly, like we believe that this is what the Bible says. We believe that this is what the Lord has led us to in this moment. And our, our, our colored history to get here has all added to the weight of this moment that we could understand together what it means to be baptized by the Holy Spirit. And so today I'm going to talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Oh, it's already up there. And I was leading up to this powerful moment and then I was going to reveal what I was talking about and it's already up there. No, I'm just kidding. I don't care. So this isn't taking a stance. This isn't engaging in a debate. This is what I hope to be a spirit-led biblical example of what this means and also why it's important. So whenever we're talking about a topic, I always like to frame like a a rubric of questions. I want to be able to ask questions so I'm not just saying like, baptism of the Holy Spirit, here's a Bible verse, get her done. Like I want to be able to frame this out, I want to be able to parse this out and look at it carefully and and, uh, critically and know that we're not just following uh, a good example, but we're actually following the Lord. So the first question that I want to ask is what? What is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Or uh, if you prefer baptism in the Holy Spirit, I think there's debate about that too. Um, If you have your Bible with you, um, go and open to Acts chapter 19. I picked this account as I was praying and and thinking about this message. Um, This is one of my favorite chapters in in the New Testament. I think it's really, really cool. But I think it's also uh, kind of programmatic. It it, it feels like similar accounts. It feels like Acts chapter 2. It feels like Acts chapter 8. It feels like Acts chapter 10. And that's a good good thing. There's a reason why this, this sort of explosive example feels like these other examples. And we're going to look at that. So in this chapter, we're seeing uh, what, what likely wasn't Paul's first trip to Ephesus, but kind of his most substantial trip to Ephesus. So if you actually, I have a map up there, uh, Elliot, if you want to throw that up, or Mia, excuse me. So this is uh, a very uh, sort of swirly, chubby map, but um, it had all the stuff that I wanted it to have. Um, so directly before this, we get this sort of journey that... Uh, that um, Paul is taking from Antioch. He's kind of coming up around, uh, he's coming up around like Colossae and all these other other uh, greater glacial regions. Um, he's also been in Corinth already and uh, he's traveling around, he's visiting these churches, but there's something, when you, when you read the book of Acts like narrative, there's something that feels very intentional about everywhere he's going because it doesn't really make sense d- directionally. <laughs> He's like traveling around. He doesn't spend very much time certain places, even though he will later spend a lot of time certain places. But he's been to Ephesus before. It says it just in the chapter before this, but he hardly spent any time there. He went to the synagogue, talked to a couple people, then left. Now he's coming back, and uh, he's coming back through the the northern uh, side of the map. He's coming back down, and he's coming to Ephesus, and there seems to be an intentionality in his time here and I point that out, and, and I just love a good map. Who loves a good map? This isn't a great map, but I love a map. I just, and if there's a map at the front of, the, of a book, I want to read that book. You know what I'm saying? And like, I'm, I like have my finger in the map every, every time, like, where are we now? Um, I love a good map. Anyways, but just so you know, this is real people. This really happened. This is what is now today Turkey. So like, there still is a city that stands there that is Ephesus in Turkey, um, and uh I just like to emphasize that it was real people in a real place in a real time in history. So let's look at verse 1, chapter 19. Are you with me? Awesome. It happened while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. He said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, no, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. 
Verse 4 says, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. There were in all about 12 men. Verse 8 says, And he entered into the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way, which is what they called this like budding church movement of Jesus, before the people, he withdrew from them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus, which is the coolest name for a school ever. Verse 10, and this took place for two years so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now, this chapter goes on. This isn't the end of the chapter by any means, but it's, uh, it's pretty profound what takes place from here. Um, this place that they're going in Ephesus was uh, notably very into what we now call Greek mythology, which to them at the time was like the religion of society. They were really into the goddess Artemis. There was actually a thriving silversmithing industry where they'd make personal shrines for people, and it was lucrative. Like people were making money off of people worshiping idols. There was a lot of money involved in this. They were also simultaneously really into witchcraft. There were uh, books and materials and, and all kinds of stuff that they were doing to kind of uh, supplement their lives. And, and, and generally, idolatry and witchcraft in, in the Old Testament was not kids wearing Metallica t-shirts playing Dungeons and Dragons. What it was was people that wanted to have more children. It was people that wanted to have a better economic status. It was people that wanted to experience these mystical things of the unseen world and actually have a real experience with them. And so these people were, were worshiping idols, doing things that the Lord would, would label as wicked and evil. And what ended up happening is that these, these 12 believers and Paul reasoning in what they probably would consider like a public school, the school of Tyrannus, um, they saw a movement of the Holy Spirit that absolutely exploded in Ephesus. Because we have a unique example with Ephesus, because we see here the beginning of the church, that later on Paul would write a very affectionate letter to that you may recognize as Ephesians, that he doesn't really rebuke them, but he encourages them, gives them great direction and great prayer, all these sort of powerful images that we read at like every wedding and, and all these powerful things that we, we look to and we love, and we see the beginning of this church here, and we see the momentum the ripple of this church is that everyone in Asia hears about Jesus. And that's really intense. Can you imagine if a guest speaker came here and then stayed here for two years? That would be crazy. Um, came here, uh, began reasoning with us, this small group of people, and then everyone in America <laughs> heard about the gospel. Like, heard about Jesus. That there was no excuse for, for ignorance at that point. That there was a move, there was a, a, a quake of the gospel. And, and Ephesus became uh, what we would call in our, our sort of modern vernacular a revival center. That it said people came and they were bringing their apparently expensive witchcraft materials and burning them in the street. And it, it amounted to about 50,000 pieces of silver. Which, I tried to look up a conversion rate, and I was getting wild numbers. We just don't know how much it was worth. But it was a day's wage was a silver piece. And so whatever that meant back then, it was people like 50,000 days wages. That's a lot of money. And the, the um, silversmiths that were making these shrines to Artemis were getting mad. They were getting mad at Paul, like, we're going to go broke. Our, our entire industry is collapsing. Our economy is failing because this this huge resurgence of Jesus is absolutely changing our community. And so I picked this passage to talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit because it's not just a personal uh, private event, but it is actually something that affects communities. It is something that affects your life. Because we see from this reasoning, from this teaching, and from this baptism, we see a movement that has absolutely transformed the world. Yeah? So let's talk about these 12, these 12 uh, men um, that were in the synagogue in Ephesus. Uh, of course, um, scholars debate about who these people are. People debate on 
12 just seems like such a convenient Christian number. There probably wasn't 12. There was probably 13 people, and they just said there was about 12 people. It doesn't really matter. The point is it was a small group of people. And, and people debate, like, these must be, like, scattered uh, disciples of, of John the Baptist. Because they knew about John's baptism. They were kind of keeping that way. They were trying to follow that. Other people uh, credit Apollos who we know from Acts 18, was in Ephesus, and he had an incomplete understanding of the gospel. He was proud and excited, but not very smart. Reminds me of me. Um, he, was, he was excited about the gospel, and then Priscilla and Aquila instructed him further on how to, how to actually teach about Jesus. And so people think, like, maybe these were disciples of Apollos who wanted to follow Jesus, but they just hadn't heard the entire story. Regardless of, of your perspective, I think... The point that is being emphasized here is that it was a small group of people, and they were genuine followers of Jesus. And I say this because um, why would Paul highlight these 12 people if they were just regular, faithful Jewish people? He found them, and he called them disciples. And usually, in Luke's writings, he identifies disciples as disciples of Jesus. And I think um, when he says a phrase, when Paul says a phrase like, when you believed... I think that's pretty telling of the fact that they were genuine believers. They genuinely believed that Jesus was who he said he was. And I, I make a, a stink about that. I make a big deal about that because I think when we read the events that follow, it's really important for us to understand. So Paul is asking these sincere followers of Jesus about the Holy Spirit. Now, I read some commentaries, and, and they were saying, like, there must have been something about them that Paul was like... Something's missing. And I read one guy, um, I'll quote him later, but he kind of uh, posted the projection. It's like, maybe they just weren't as free or, or demonstrative in worship as, as the Jews were, uh, or as like the people who were full of the Holy Spirit. And I think that's a fair statement. But if you've ever been to like a Shabbat dinner, like they can actually get pretty excited. <laughs> they can actually get pretty demonstrative. Um, and so I, I, don't know, I don't know what it was, but Paul was prompted to ask them about Holy Spirit and they return with this unique sort of phrase where they're like, we didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. And one uh, uh, commentator kind of suggested, um, Stanley Horton suggested in his commentary, that that phrase in verse 2 could actually probably be translated this way, we have not heard if the Holy Spirit is. And the difference there is that um, these guys were at the very least Jewish, and uh, Holy Spirit is not like a new character to people of Orthodox Judaism, especially of the time. There's lots of Old Testament passages that uh, name and characterize and flesh out who Holy Spirit actually is. And so it's not that they've never heard of the Holy Spirit, but they didn't know that he was around. <laughs> they didn't know that he was doing things. And so what's likely is that they were genuine followers of Jesus they had heard about Jesus probably from John or one of John's disciples. They had gotten baptized for repentance so they could be right with God, and they were just doing their best. They were doing their best to follow Jesus and be faithful to him based on the words of the prophet. And so Paul comes in, and he's like, you guys have to understand, John didn't just talk about repentance for the sake of repentance, but it was repentance so you could know Jesus. Every time John was talking about Jesus. Every time we have him recorded talking about Jesus in the New Testament, he mentions that one is coming after me. One is coming after me whose sandal I, I'm not worthy to unbuckle. And he is the one who will baptize you in the Holy Spirit and in fire. So this message of Jesus and this message of Holy Spirit were critical. Were critical to the ministry of John and were critical to the life of a believer. And so Paul begins to have this conversation with them. And this is where sort of the theological distinction starts to happen, is that I think the significance that we can see through a story like this is that there seems to be some sort of expression of the Holy Spirit that actually happens after you are converted. That these people were genuine followers of Jesus, and then they received the Holy Spirit. And so this comes at attention. So um, I'm going to put, if we could put John 20 up on the screen. <coughs> Verse uh, 21. So Jesus said to them, he's speaking to the 12 disciples, he's speaking to his core group. Peace be with you. The Father has sent me, I also send you. Verse 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. 
So we read that and we're like, man, when you are a regenerate, confessing believer, you receive the Holy Spirit. At the moment that you say yes to Jesus, this is the Romans 8 expression that you are a life in the Spirit. And I think that's beautiful. I think that's accurate. I think that's, you can take that to the bank. If you believe in your heart and confess through your mouth that Jesus is Lord, the Holy Spirit lives inside you. But then, the same Jesus who says this in John 20, probably uh, not very much long later, um, in uh, Acts 1.8, he says this, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and even to the remotest, Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. So the disciples in John 20 were genuine Christians. But Jesus in Acts chapter 1 still told them there's something missing. He actually warned them and encouraged them to wait for the Holy Spirit to wait for this power that was going to come upon them to witness. And Peter, um, I, this is, this is the, the best gift that can be given to somebody that likes the Bible, is when the Bible kind of explains the Bible. I think that's one of the most useful. It's like, I trust the scriptures, and when the scriptures explain the scriptures, I can trust the scriptures. So, when Peter, full of the Holy Spirit, uh, responds to the multitudes in Acts chapter 2, we see there's this dynamic, emphatic phenomenon that happens. And I use those kind of words because I hope that just like pricks your imagination because it wasn't just like, oh yeah, church was a little loud that morning. It was wind. It was fire. Like, not like, oh, I felt the fire. No, there was, people were looking and were like, oh my gosh, fire, like actual fire. People were speaking and probably very loudly in languages that they did not understand. So much so that it, it, it gathered a large group of people. And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, decided to address that entire multitude. And he explained the phenomenon as like, this is not occult weirdness. This is not drunk people at 9 o'clock in the morning. What this is, is a prophecy long since forgotten and neglected from Joel. And he explains it. So let's look at Joel 2. This is what, what Peter quotes in Acts chapter 2. He says, um, it will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. So Peter is saying, that's what this is. You, you see the, the expression, the fulfillment of this, this passage in, in, in this demonstration, in what's going on here today. But here's, here's something difficult. Here's a, here's, a, here's a hard pill to swallow. To the onlooker, Peter's interpretation of that verse feels inaccurate. Nobody says that. It's not in there. But think about it with me. All mankind, male, female, rich, poor, At best, the church consisted of 120 people. <laughs> that is a gross exaggeration to consider that to be all mankind. Right? So what is the distinction? Where, where did the distinction come in where Peter boldly could say, all mankind will receive the Holy Spirit. They'll prophesy young, old, rich, poor, all that sort of stuff. Male, female, all these things. They'll prophesy. They'll do these things. It's, it's a sign from God. It's a word from the Lord. And can you imagine being a Jew, a genuine, like, follow, like, you're there in Jerusalem because of Pentecost, you know, you're there being Jewish, doing the Jewish thing, and like, well, what about me? <laughs> like, it's like you're saying all mankind is receiving the Holy Spirit, and that's a relatively small group of people when you set it next to all mankind. And so the distinction that we're drawing here is that there seems to be some sort of prerequisite to uh, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And, and I feel like words like prerequisite sound like red flags. Like, you're telling me I need to earn the baptism of the Holy Spirit? What are you talking about? Like, that's crazy. That's absurd. Don't think prerequisite like you need, uh, uh, like, uh, associates to get a bachelor's, you know? Like, uh, it's not like that. But those who had faith in Jesus received the Holy Spirit, and those who were keeping the law, those who were keeping the Torah, did not. 
But then, after they heard the gospel of Jesus, as they heard the good news about Jesus, they were baptized in water, they were filled with the Holy Spirit in the same very manifestation that the disciples did. So with faith in Jesus, there comes this expression that the Lord wants for you that he calls a baptism, that he calls fire, that he calls the Holy Spirit. And this is, uh, this is where there's like... Um, Theological distinction. There's a lot of people that are like, you guys who make a big deal about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you don't realize when you're regenerate, when you believe in Jesus, you receive the Holy Spirit. I absolutely agree. I'm not saying anybody that uh, comes from a conservative tradition that has never experienced manifestations and prophetic whatever, 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 I'm not saying that they're not saved. That would be foolish. That would be inappropriate. But what I am saying is like, if we look at the story, something else happened. That I hope that as I, I stake my, my own life on, on the, the words of Jesus, when he said, you genuine believers, before you take the assignment that I'm going to give to you, wait for the Holy Spirit. Wait for power. That I, I hope that means something to us today. I hope that that, that uh, crosses a threshold for us to realize that there's something that the Lord wants to do. There's something that he's been planning to do for a long time. And he's not done doing it. Um, there was a guy that wrote a, a, a wonderful little book called Holy Spirit. Um, <laughs> and uh, Anthony Palma, and I have a quote from him. It says, The post-conversion experience of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a work of the Holy Spirit distinct from that of regeneration. So that's summary of what, what I'm talking about. But it does not imply that salvation is a two-stage process. It's not saying, like, I think, I don't know if Nate coined the term or if he stole it from someone else, but we, say, we make jokes about it all the time. It's not Christian plus. It's not like, oh, well, once I bundle, like, tongues with my regular salvation, then I've got a Christian, Christian plus package, and that's baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's not for the elite. It's not for the mature. It is for the faithful. It's for those who believe in Jesus. So, I want to I point out three theological implications um, as we look at Acts chapter 19 in its relation to uh, the other phenomenons in the book of Acts and the other phenomenons in the New Testament. Number one, this baptism is for everyone who believes in Jesus. And Jesus considered it necessary. So, I, I like to say things like that because if I just say, I think it's necessary... Who cares what I think? I mean, <laughs> that doesn't matter. But Jesus thinks it's necessary. Number two, this is an event that is happening continually. I can say this with confidence because uh, Paul arrived at Ephesus not on the same day that the Feast of Pentecost happened. This is not the same day that... Um, the, the, the jailer received the Holy Spirit in his entire house. This is not the same day as the Ethiopian eunuch. This is, not, this is likely almost 20 years later <laughs> that Paul arrives at Ephesus and we see the same manifestation that happened in Acts chapter 2 happen in Ephesus, which is a good distance away and in both space and time. This is not something that God intended when he, when he spoke those words through Joel to happen in one instant and then be over. This is something that he intended to happen over and over and over again to those who received. That would be cool if that happened at like a really significant moment, but that just get, gave everybody a chance to take a deep breath. <gasps> what are we talking about? Okay, this is an event that happens continually, and, and so much so that we, we carry to the theology that this still happens today. That there are men and women that believe wholeheartedly that this is over. That when we kind of had this sort of mythological closed canon of the Bible that, that God stopped doing stuff like this. Um, 
I would argue that the Bible doesn't actually say that. <laughs> so um, the Bible doesn't actually, uh, you can look at uh, 1 Corinthians 13 where it says like uh, when we come to completeness, when we come to fullness, when, when the fullness of the age comes, then uh, tongues and prophecy will cease. And I was like, that's not where we're at. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep believing for the baptism of the Holy Spirit and to realize that throughout our, our history as, as church, big C church, the church all over the world, that we've gone through ebbs and flows where we've emphasized certain themes. If you can imagine, there was generations before us who didn't really think the Great Commission that was that big of a deal and like sharing the gospel with other people. It's like, how do you how do you fall out of that theme of like sharing the gospel? But it's true. If you look at church history, there's churches that are multiplying by having babies, not by actually telling other people about Jesus. You know, but um, we see what is considered like new Pentecostalism to be a relatively recent movement. But I just consider that the grace of God that he brought people together and said, like, wait a second. The Bible didn't say that this stopped. Can we still believe that the Lord will heal? Can we still believe that the Lord will empower us to be his witnesses? And praise God for that. So, number three. The, the specific responses are significant. And I, I draw attention to that. Um, I think there's... A reputation that we have as uh, people that are a part of the Assemblies of God. Maybe I'm using terms like the Assemblies of God, and you don't even know what that means. It's it's we're a network of churches. We were planted for a purpose. We that's why we have doctrine and bylaws, and we're not just Nate, who's 30, just making all decisions based on his own brain. Like we we're a part of a, a network of churches that we're we're trying really hard to be faithful to the Lord and thank God for accountability and responsibility, and that we're not alone. Sometimes in Pagosa, it feels like we're alone, but we're not alone. We have really great leaders. We have really great uh, presbyters and all this sort of stuff. But our reputation has been that we're tongues people. I don't know if you've ever heard that. <laughs> Maybe not in those terms. But uh, I had people tell me that, oh, yeah, I used to go to First Assembly, but they said that you had to speak in tongues to be saved, and so I just didn't think that was right, and so I don't go to church there anymore. And I was like, who said that? Tell me who said that. And it was probably like 45 years ago or something. That somebody, somebody said something like that. And they're like, oh, no, I can't do that. We, what we believe is that you can speak in tongues. I believe that the, the baptisms of the Holy Spirit will give you that gift. And I think it's for everybody. So, and, and I think that because that's what the Bible says. And so, um, and, and, and I have no stock. I don't make money from you speaking in tongues. We don't like, we don't get to report that on our like statistics at the end of the fiscal year. We're <laughs> It's like, we do report who's speaking in tongues. <laughs> but the point is, that is not our ascendancy. That's not our goal, is to speak in tongues. Our goal is to be faithful to Jesus. So if we're tongues people because we, we want to teach the Bible and we want to teach that, that's fine. But I'm here to tell you, you don't have to speak in tongues to be saved. But I believe it's something that God wants for every person. And I believe when we see manifestations like this, like these sincere followers of Jesus who had incomplete revelation, we shouldn't pity them. We shouldn't be like, those poor little idiots. They didn't even know what it was like to be Pentecostal. Have you ever even waved flags in church before? Come on. Like, it's not like that. The point was, I, I hear in Paul's voice, if you can track with me for a moment, I hear sympathy. Like, oh, guys, there's more. You're not just going from repentance to repentance, but the Lord is going to give you power, power to obey him. I'm going to ask you a cheesy preacher question. Who needs power today? Who wants power to obey God? I want power to obey God because I am a very powerless person. And I would beg that you probably are too. So uh, that, that was not in my notes, but I think it's worth saying. Um, the, the specific responses are important, and, and, I, and I point that out because there's something that is deep entrenched in our heritage as, as believers in the United States that is dependent on this. So uh, to clear the air, Christianity at its foundation is, uh, is birthed from Judaism. I make this statement, lots of scholars have made the statement that when Paul said yes to Jesus— he didn't convert to Christianity, but he pledged allegiance to Jesus because he was already trying really hard to follow God. And then he realized like, oh God, I've been following you incorrectly. Let me try and follow you. That these Jewish people who made up the foundation and the original pillar of the church, they were not somehow not follow, like, 
how do I say that simply? That the, there is, the foundation of our faith is Jewish. But none of you if, you, if you decide to become a partner with Open Door Church, we're not going to make you become Jewish. It's just not a requirement. And this is what so much of the New Testament is dealing with, is these figures that in, in this age were called Judaizers that were trying to make Gentile people who had authentic experiences with Jesus become Jewish so they could become Christians. They're telling grown men, you need to get circumcised so that way God will hear your prayer. And grown men from Gentile backgrounds are like, ah, excuse me? And so there's this big council that happens in Acts 15 where these genuine leaders in the church are just debating this. It's like, how do we, we just haven't had to do this before. That these people are Gentiles, but they're following Jesus without doing the Jewish stuff. Like, what do we do with this? How do we, how do we reason this? The mic is passed to Peter, and Peter's like, guys, I was with you. I understand. But when I shared the gospel with Gentile people who were authentically, intimately drawn by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and he gave them manifestation just like he gave to us. If you look at it in Acts 15, 8. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit just as he also did to us. Can we get verse 9 in there too? I don't think I have that, but can you grab that for me? Sorry. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. I feel like that is so powerful because what he's drawing the picture to is like they didn't have a different sort of baptism. They didn't have this sort of Gentile Jewish light sort of baptism, but they received the Holy Spirit the same way that we did. And it's across the board. Even cessationist commentators are writing like, we believe that this was the prophecy in tongues, that the Holy Spirit came in power. They spoke in tongues. They spoke words prophetically from the Lord. And we knew like that's the same thing that happened to us. And so because of this, because of this stance that Peter takes in the midst of confusion and not sure how to proceed, that we today have had the opportunity to become Christians without becoming Jewish. That's like the main reason, I think, that like missionaries came to wherever our countries of origin are, you know. And, and I'm excited, you know. I think every time I meet somebody that's really into Hebrew roots, they always tell me that I am Jewish. Um, which is fine. I mean, I don't really know. I've never done Jewish stuff, so I don't really... I mean, maybe I am. Sweet. I heard that you can get a free trip to Israel if you can, like, prove your Jewish... Uh, like, I think it's, like, $250, and you get to go to Israel for, like, two weeks if you can prove that you're Jewish. And I was like, well, then maybe I am Jewish, because that sounds awesome. Um, I, I literally knew a guy that did that, and I was like, I didn't know that you were Jewish. He's like, yeah, I mean, yeah, kind of. Like, my, <laughs> my grandma is, but I got to go on a free trip. This is awesome. Um... But the point is, the reason that we are able to receive the gospel is because this sign testified that we are authentic followers of Jesus. And I think that's exciting, and I think that's worth not just, like, putting a blanket over the, the, the response, putting a blanket over, or, over tongues and prophecy and those kinds of things. It's worth it to pay attention because that actually means something to us. So, uh, Pentecostal scholar Gordon Fee he famously kind of summarizes the, the Holy Spirit and the activity of the Holy Spirit as God's empowering presence, that it is literally God. He is literally, personally, uniquely God, and he comes with his presence in power. Now, we're going to talk about different manifestations of the Holy Spirit, and I think that's usually where the mind goes, and we're like, well, what do you think about the difference between knowledge and wisdom, whatever? We're not really going to talk about that today, but before we get there, I want to talk about the next question, and the next question is why. I just got excited and sweaty and talked about what and spent 30 minutes doing that. Why? This is one of my favorite questions in all of Bible study and faith. What does it matter? So, so maybe we learned something. Maybe we got a little excited. Why? What's the point? The point, I would argue is Jesus. Because we all have to come to faith. Don't laugh. That's, I'm being serious. We all have to come to faith in the same way. None of us came to faith because we, we spoke in tongues. 
I had a remarkably nerdy example that would appeal to maybe two people in the room. I'm not going to use it. Ask me about it later. It's not about like achieving some sort of spiritual ability. That's not what this is about. We all come to faith through Jesus. Jesus himself said he is the only way to the Father. He's the only way to the Lord. So the reason that we, we make much of the Holy Spirit, make much of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I want to honestly confess is because of Jesus. And I would argue that's the same reason we give credence to the Bible. Because honestly, you guys, I love teaching. I like, I love teaching the Bible. I love reading. I love reading most things. And I think the Bible as literature is remarkable. The story is compelling. But a compelling story is not worth staking your eternal life. If that was the case, then I could follow Lord of the Rings. But that's not the point. The reason that I trust the Bible is because Jesus trusted the Bible. Jesus, Jesus trusted the Bible. He uh, appointed apostles to, to elaborate and teach the Bible, and that's why I trust the Bible. And so the reason that I care about the Holy Spirit, the reason that I care about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, is because Jesus said, it's going to be your advantage if I go because he'll come right? Jesus makes a big deal about this, so I want to make a big deal about this. Because the last time I taught, I, I kind of referenced this of like the disciples who were there in Acts chapter 1, as Jesus is about to ascend into heaven, uh, they had been with him for a while. They had been uh, doing teaching and stuff for, for uh, doing on-the-job training the, the sickest internship you'll ever have in your life with Jesus for years. That they had done some incredible stuff. That many of them, if not all of them, had spoken to demons and demons fleed from their presence. That a lot of them had been instrumental in healing taking place and deliverance and salvation and miracles and all these sort of things. And they're just coming off after one of the most important master classes that could ever exist where Jesus takes them in Luke 24, it says that he takes them through the entirety of the scriptures explaining who he is with the Old Testament, opening their minds to the Bible. And now they're standing there, and they're like, this is it. This is the consolation of Israel. This is when you're going to restore the kingdom. This is it. And he's like, ah, no, not yet. It's not for you to know. But what he does tell them is you need to wait. Wait? Are you kidding me? We've been working on this for years, Jesus. We're ready to get out there and start some fires metaphorically. And he's like, you, you, there's something missing. All the experience, all the right doctrine, all the, all the teachings, all the education, none of it is going to provide an adequate supplement, an adequate, um, what is the term? Like uh, substitute, that's what I'm looking for. An adequate substitute for what you're waiting for. That is the power of the Holy Spirit to come upon you. None of that other stuff is going to substitute for this. None of that other stuff is bad. Jesus didn't do that just to waste time and be like, hey, there's something else. It didn't even matter. Like, none of that other stuff is bad. I think that's really beautiful. I think we should contend to have our minds open to the scriptures. I think we should contend to do the things that Jesus did and follow him like the disciples did. But the point is that Jesus said that this was necessary and pivotal. Okay. So now here's a good question. How? So we talked about it. And I, I've said this before, and, it, and it's probably uh, is belaboring the point at this point. I really, I've, I've, like, I, I've always struggled with messages where people are like, all right, it's impossible without faith to please God, so have faith. Go in peace. Bless you. It's like, first of all, please God. First of all, faith. First of all, have? What? What are, you, what are you talking about? How do I have faith? What is faith? What does pleasing God look like? I don't, know, I don't know any of those terms. That's not what we're talking about today. But if I make a big deal about the baptism of the Spirit and then we don't talk about how to actually be baptized in the Holy Spirit, what are you going to do? Go home and be like, oh, yeah, church was confusing. Um, communion was good, but the message, I, where, where do we go? What do we do? So I don't know if you know this about me. I am prone to over-explaining. It's just, it's the way it is. Uh, I applied for a job a while back, and uh, I listed my, my, my all-star team of references, people who I knew would say nice things. 
And everybody came back with saying, like, Adams, he's fine. He just talks a lot. <laughs> and I get it. I'm aware. It's a character flaw. I'm working on it. So I want to keep this direct. I want to keep this concise. What we see in the New Testament, what we see as the prescription that the Lord gives is faith and prayer. That you would believe and trust and pledge loyalty to Jesus and that you would pray. Jesus even kind of like gives a little Easter egg to this in Luke 11 where he talks about fathers giving gifts to their children. You guys remember that story? Or he's like, if your son asks for uh, uh, an egg, you're not going to give him a stone. So even if you know how to give good gifts, how much more will I give you the Holy Spirit if you ask? And we're like, asking for the Holy Spirit? Whoa. Profound. Beautiful. Uh, this is a good time to address what is probably rightfully called a heresy. Um, I, I'm, for the sake of this morning, I'll call it a, a fallacy. It's just false. I don't think there's a lot of testament to this. But a lot of people, uh, maybe not a lot of people, um, a, a group of people um, over time and probably even still today um, kind of prescribed as part of faith and prayer is also the laying on of hands by an apostle. That that was a necessary component for these, this baptism of the Holy Spirit. Because it says that in Acts chapter 19. is like, and then Paul laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. And so people have used that to manipulate and take advantage of other people. Be like, I'm an apostle, and I have a gift to give you. I have an impartation to impart to you, so you need to X, Y, Z. And I just want to say, it's not there. That's not what it's saying. We don't have this biblical case for the fact that there are people who are somehow higher than us that are helping us do this. That is... Uh, just a means that people can use to take advantage of each other. And what I would say to the laying on of hands and, and the importance of that is I think it creates affection and community that is necessary for cultivating a life in the Lord. I think we see that often, often in the New Testament is laying on of hands. And we're like, oh man, my hands are supercharged. And then I get to just like hit other people with God. And it's like, I don't really think that's the point. I think the point is that we would link arms, that we would hands on shoulders, that we would side hug our way into community, that there would be affection and physical affection. Because we don't talk about the whole, like, greet one another with the holy kiss thing, right? That's gross. That's cultural. But the point of that prescription is be affectionate, man. I remember having to cross that bridge when we were doing youth group, and, and I was like, over here, and I was like, I, I'll pray for you at a distance, but I don't really want to touch you. I don't really want to get near you. I'm not a, my family's not a physical touch thing. My kids are. I'm not. Um, and I always make the joke about, like, ask somebody's permission and then give them a hug. That was mostly for me. Um, and, and I get it. But the point is that that prescription, even the, the holy kiss thing and the laying on of hands was to create and cultivate affection and fellowship and community. And I think there's something profound that is so deeply comforting when somebody is praying for you. Like, how much more comforting is it if, if, if Morgan's like, man, I'm struggling. Will you pray for me? And I'll be like, yeah, I'll pray for you. Versus like, let me pray for you right now. Like, let's ask some friends. Let's lay hands on you. Not because my hands have something going on. Just to let her know I'm actually with you. I'm actually here. And when I said I'll pray for you, I'm actually doing it. I had a pastor tell me that one time. He's like, always pray for people immediately because it sucks if you forget. <laughs> if you're like, I'm going to pray for you, and then you never pray for them, that's so bad. And I was like, just pray for them immediately. I'm not always good about that. So I think that's how. Honestly, I think that's how you become baptized with the Holy Spirit. I had this book that I gave to somebody else. I really wish I would have had it this week um, as I was writing this, but it was called How to Be Baptized in the Holy Spirit. It was by A.W. Tozer. And really it was... Have faith, believe the scriptures, pray. It was like four sermons worth of have faith, believe the scriptures, pray. So let's talk about gifts. This is probably where a lot of minds go when it comes to Pentecostalism, when it comes to uh, these sort of charismatic expressions. Um, and this morning, I'm not really interested in like spiritual gift tests of like saying like what spiritual gift matches your Enneagram number. Like, I, I, don't really, I don't really care about that. 
We actually had some of those tests here at the church. We found them. And uh, it was bad news for your church staff. Like, we were all, like, we all scored low on exorcism. But they were, like, grading you, like, have you exercised a demon? And I'm like, I don't think so. And they're like, then you're not gifted in exorcism. So I was like, is that the qualifying factor? Is there not something else? Why am I taking this quiz if I just had to measure, like, oh, have I prayed for someone and then got healed? It's like, oh, then you're gifted in healing. It's like, this is not a quiz. This is stating the obvious. So I'm not interested in that. But what I am interested in is peering through the gifts, peering through the signs, and aiming at the goal. That why did Jesus make a big deal about this? Because the gifts are, are, are inseparable. It's not something that we can just be like, I want the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but I don't want any of the things that the Holy Spirit does. That, you don't want that. That's just how it works. I've, I've worked on that with several people that are like, oh, man, I just really want to be consistent. I just go snowboarding instead. Every time I want to pray, I just go snowboarding. And I just, I just miss it. I don't know. I don't understand. Every time I want to read the Bible, I just end up playing video games. I just don't understand. And it's like, what do you want you actually do? <laughs> you know. So if you want more of God, then you'll embrace the things that God does. But the goal is not the gifts. The goal is not like, hey, what gifts do you have? Oh, yeah, I have that gift too. Oh, you just have the gift of helps? <laughs> it's like, well, I have prophecy. I, uh, like, I have healing in my hands and heal people. That's not the point. If we look at the prescription of Jesus, humor is a mechanism, you guys. It's a coping mechanism where, like, I don't know if you guys like me, and so I just start saying silly stuff. <laughs> um, the, the, the point, the reason that Jesus made a big deal about this is that if, if we think about Acts 1-8 again, he talked about power. This was the word that he used, and he talked about witness. And so we can peer through all of the other layers of stuff, all the other examples, all the other uh, emphasis, and we can look like, is this empowering us to witness? I think there are two dimensions of witness. I think there is, I wrote this in my notes and I was just reading it this morning. I said, the witnessing of Jesus and the witnessing of Jesus. And I realized I wrote the same thing twice, thinking that I said it differently. The point is to actually be a witness of Jesus, to actually witness him. And this is to mean to know God, that God's actually going to give you power in the Holy Spirit to know him. And we need it. We need that power to know God. The last time when I, when I talked about the person of the Holy Spirit a few weeks ago, I talked about like uh, 1 Corinthians 14 where it says like if you pray in a tongue, you, um, you speak mysteries to God and you edify yourself. I'm like, what? That sounds amazing. It's this idea that he actually enables you. Like, like 1 Corinthians 2, it says that he, he, the Holy Spirit, searches all things, even the depths of God. Jesus said in John 16 that the Holy Spirit will come and teach us all things, that we can actually know God through the Holy Spirit. And the second dimension is that we would make him known through the Holy Spirit, that he's giving us gifts to know him, and he's giving us gifts to make him known. So today, if I say the word tongues and interpretation, and that makes you sweat, really what we're after is knowing God and making him known. If prophecy is like, I've been burned by that before. Like, that's just, there's this guy that gave me a prophetic word, and I just wanted to punch him in the throat. He just, he didn't know me. He didn't know what was going on. That's so inappropriate. I just want to tell you, like, I am sincerely sorry for people that abuse this stuff, for people that, that uh, fight the leadership of the Lord, or people that misunderstand. But the point is, to know God and to make him known. So let's look at the Bible. I actually have that in my notes, so that way I make sure that I look at it. No, I'm just kidding. Um, 1 Corinthians 12. This is widely debated passage, uh, and people uh, get confused, 12, 13, 14. Um, and I can't say, like, I'm not confused. I get it. I, it's hard. I get it. But I, I think this is worth pointing out. So let's start in verse 4. This is, again, Paul speaking to the church in Corinth. He says, Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. 
There are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit, and to another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the effecting of miracles, to another, prophecy, and to another, distinguishing of spirits, and to another, various kinds of tongues, and to another, interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all things, distributing to each one individually, just as he, being the Lord, wills. I think one of my favorite phrases here, uh, I, I share this because it is a list. We have a couple of these lists, and I hope that list like provokes your imagination where you're just like, what? Is this what the church is like? Is this what the family of God is like? Is these kinds of things? Like, I hope that provokes your imagination. But the thing that really sticks out to me is verse 7 where it says, but to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. That the point isn't like, I want to be a healer so I can heal so people think I'm a healer. Or I want to be a prophet so I can prophesy and people know that I'm a prophet and I can put that on my business card and I can get invited to churches and stuff like that. That's not the point. The point is the common good. The point is the church that knows God and makes him known. And for a lot of us, these gifts feel like, ah, oh, that'll slow us down. <laughs> it's like, can we, do, can we just do deeper projects? You know, can we just do the, the quiet Wednesday prayer meeting? Like, what about all these other things? Like, that seems hard. What if I say something and I'm wrong. <laughs> I think something that is so good for us is to understand when Paul is saying this to the church in Corinth, the church in Corinth is not elite and mature and doing great. They have a litany of issues that he's having to address and rebuke actively. Yet he opens the book saying, like, in you, there is no lack of any gift. So these gifts are not like, once we've graduated past the Bible and communal accountability, once we've graduated past those things, then we get into prophecy. Then we get to decide what's the difference between knowledge and wisdom, and we get to start sharing people's dirty laundry from the microphone on Sunday morning. Then it gets real. No, this is, this is a tool for us to grow. This is a tool for us to mature before the Lord. This is a tool for the common good. And honestly, this is a theory, so don't like write this in your personal doctrinal statement that's on your fridge at your house. This is a theory. I think that manifestations of the Spirit are difficult because it provokes diversity and tension. Because if I went to a church where I got along with everyone and we had all the things in common and we agreed on everything, that's, that's not really unity. That's like segregation. I, I know that's like a, a poignant word, but it's like the reality. When I just go places where everything clicks and everything makes sense and everything's easy, one, that place doesn't exist. Eventually, some, some, some dork's going to speak from the pulpit and say something like, I don't know about that. And you're going to have to decide, is this something that I need to fight against? Or is this something that is creating tension that will further produce greater unity? Because Paul, in, in chapter 12, goes on to describe the body of Christ as a physical body. He's like, it's a one body. I don't know why. It's a one body. <laughs> it's one body. I said that funny. Um, but many members make it up. And all of those members are, are necessary. You may think that some members are not honorable or important, but all of the members of the body are necessary. What he's saying is, in the body of Christ, there will be radical diversity. There has to be. We are an egalitarian fellowship that everyone's on the equal playing field, that we all came to faith by Jesus, right? Nobody came to Jesus because their, their parents were really awesome. Nobody came to Jesus because uh, they, they, they bought their ticket. We all came to Jesus based on his grace, and so, there's going to be radical diversity. There's going to be tension created by that, 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 that mixture. And I think there's something to unity that thrives on that kind of diversity. And he's saying these things are going to be hard. Can you imagine? Okay, 
I don't have chapter 14 in my notes, but if you read chapter 14, 14 is like every, every like armchair theologian's idea. Like any, anytime somebody talks about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, it's like, well, you didn't read in chapter 14 where it says you should speak in a tongue. And like, I get it. It's there all preaching in a, as an adequate. I'm not going to talk about everything. I have to reconcile that in my own self. But the point is, can you imagine two to three prophesying and the rest of them judging the words of prophecy? Talk about terrifying I've been to churches where just like anybody can, like, it's just common knowledge. If you grab the microphone, you can pull it out of the pastor's hand and just say whatever you want. And I'm like, this is chaos. This is so scary. Like, one person's like, the fire from heaven's going to come down. And another person's like, I just feel like we need to rest in the reign of God. And like, it's like, what are we doing? I'm being pulled all over the place. What's going on? And it's like, and I just feel like in that moment, the Lord's not intimidated. He's not like, oh, man, these silly false prophets, we're going to burn them at the stake. Like, because where the, the exercise of spiritual gifts in the church in Corinth was inappropriate. They were, had ethical issues. They had all kinds of stuff. He didn't tell them, stop. He said, do not stop. Do not forbid the speaking in tongues. Do not forbid prophecy. That in the Old Testament, we're like, if you are a false prophet, you're going to die. You're going to get killed. But in the New Testament, it's like, we need this. We need this. And we're scared. I'm scared. I don't want to do this. <laughs> I'm scared sometimes. Sometimes I'm not scared. It depends on what the Lord says. <laughs> sometimes I'm like, I'm excited to share this. Let's rein it in. All right. Gifts are for the common good. They're for the bo body of believers and also for the witness of the gospel. That I think the gifts, if done correctly, are not going to tear us apart. I think historically we can see examples where churches have torn themselves apart by abusing different gifts and stuff like that. But I think honestly, if we, if we keep to the Lord, if we love one another and we stay humble and we keep to the Lord, then I think honestly it'll bring us together. Uh, I think I have to believe that. I, I just feel like that's the example that we see. And the early church, as much as we like to idealize the early church, they weren't perfect either. They had lots of issues. They had lots of things that they had to work out. But the point is, if we want to be that church that Nate was talking about last week, this church full of the Holy Spirit, then we have to expect that the Holy Spirit's going to do what he wants to do. And we have to expect that uh, you're a part of that. Because the Holy Spirit is not just in the business of identifying the weird and the outgoing among us. We used to do these things called theology labs um, in youth group. And we did one about like the fivefold ministry and stuff. And we're like, so what are prophets? And they're like, I'm people who prophesy, but that seems like a thing that happens in like Africa, you know, that doesn't really seem like something that happens here or something that like scary pastors who, who say scary things do or like, what are, uh, like it's, <laughs> are prophets just like the, the loud and obnoxious and kind of weird among us? Or is there actually a priest of, of all believers where we prophesy because the Holy Spirit lives inside of us? Now, that being said, I think a lot of prophets are weird, and that's okay. Because maybe you're weirder than you let on to be. And <laughs> I don't know. But the, the point is, the gifts of the Holy Spirit aren't just for those who are, like, super outgoing. I, if, you, if you know me past, like, this, I'm not super outgoing. <laughs> I'm super ingoing. <laughs> like I, uh, I'm, I'm like I remember a lady telling me she's like, oh yeah, I just met these great believers. They were just fiery and and really extroverted, just like you. And I was like, what? <laughs> have you have we met? <laughs> like, what are you talking about? She's like, just on on Sunday nights when you preach. I was like, that is not like the way I am at work. I don't know what you're talking about. Like, I get excited for sure, but this isn't just like, it's it it's not your personality that is that is linking you to the body of Christ. It's not your personality that is going to be the vessel that God uses you through. It's just your willingness. I believe if you're like, yeah, I think the church does need prophecy. I think the church does need prayer for healing. I wish Austin would do something about that. I, I wish Braden would just get his act together and finally start speaking in tongues and then Tina could interpret and we could finally have church. We could finally have spirit-filled church. Ask the Lord, man. Ask the Lord, baptize me. And whatever you want me to do, I want to do it. Because just like you aren't going to give your son a scorpion when he asks for a fish, I hope, God isn't giving you something wicked when he gives you the Holy Spirit. 
He's not giving you something dangerous and evil. He's giving you something for the common good to know him and to make him known that appeals to unity and diversity that will actually bring us together to be the church that he's coming back for. Thank you for listening to this week's message. Our ministry is made possible entirely by the faithful generosity of people just like you. If you were blessed by this message and would like to partner with what the Lord is doing in Pagosa Springs, visit us online at www.opendoorpagosa.com. Here you can give, see our service times, and stay connected with Open Door Church. We hope to see you soon.